Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, my friends. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's do a little Life Over Coffee. I had someone write in and they asked a question about a fallen leader and they want to know how to help someone who is fallen. And so this is episode 441 and that's how you would find it on our website if you want to go through the show notes that I'm about to share with you. And I would encourage you to do that because there's a lot of links in these show notes. And the title of it is, How to Respond to a Fallen Christian Leader. If you want to search for it, just use those three words right there, Fallen Christian Leader. And these show notes will come up and and you will be able to go through what I'm about to share with you. But again, what's very important here is that there's a lot of links inside episode 441. And the reason that that is important is because In this short time that we have together, I will not be able to cover everything that needs to be covered when talking about something that is so important as a leader who has fallen into sin, who is part of a local church. And so it's a super serious subject, but it requires comprehensive care that's more expansive than what I can do here in this brief time. And so I just want to give you a bullet list of things to think about. And again, it's not even an exhaustive bulleted list. And then if you're in this situation and you want more help, I would encourage you to go to episode 441 and just start working through uh, the links here, and it will take you throughout our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. Now, the reader asks, and let me preface this because I think the reader is a hunter, uh, they, or maybe they live in the woods somewhere, and so I appreciate the way the question is framed. Part of it is hyperbole. I recognize that. This is not exactly how you would frame the question, but I am just sharing it with you how it was written to me. And this will also give you some insight of some of the questions that we receive. And so the reader asked, said, when a leader falls... The church bags him up and throws him out. Can you comment on how to respond to a fallen leader? Now, I assume that there is hyperbole in the question to make a point because actually the truth is the church, generally speaking or broadly speaking, does not do that. There are some exceptions, and unfortunately, the exceptions are the ones that we talk about. And so I'm not minimizing the question at all, but I I do want to balance the question out because some churches are quite outstanding in how they care for their leaders that are captured by sin. As this uh, person is saying, uh, they don't bag them up and throw them out. But the question is valid, though I wouldn't frame it that way. But the question is valid. And so what I want to do is to explore this essential issue because it could come to any local church. All of us are just one step away of falling into sin and and making our lives complex and then all of the relationships that are associated with our lives. And so you you might say that, well, I'm not a pastor and I'm not in the work of restoring fallen leaders, and so this doesn't apply. Yeah, everything that I'm going to share with you applies. Basically, I'm just using a, a fallen church leader as 
as the case study, uh, but as we work through this, uh, you'll recognize that there's a lot of admonition for all of us, and I trust a little bit of encouragement too. But do let me repeat that this is not an exhaustive treatment for caring for a fallen leader, and so I want to encourage you to go through uh, the show notes here in episode 441 because you do want to have as much material that you can get your hands on to care for the fallen leader, to care for his family, and also the local church. And so you can see how expansive that is. Now, those are three people that are hurt by this, by the fallen leader, the leader himself, the family, the local church. But more importantly is the fame of God, the glory of God, uh, that this is not the picture that his uh, children are to emulate and to put forth as lights in the world. And, but it does happen because we do sin. And so when we do fall, we do want to have a, a plan to work through it because the, ultimately the glory of God, the fame of God is at stake. And so we want to do all that we possibly can do to cooperate with God, to come alongside this individual, to care for him, care for his family, and hope to bring some restorative care to the local church as well. And so when I'm all said and done, I'm going to cover three areas, and I will go in and out of these three areas uh, as I move through episode 441. But the three areas are this, uh, to careful, ex- uh, careful self-examination before you respond. That's always a call to action, number one. Number two, compassion toward the fallen person. And then number three, competent plan to help everyone involved, him, the family, the local church. And so first, careful examination of us, the soul care restorers, compassion toward this person so we're not looking down at this individual self-righteously like a man standing in the temple beating his breast and saying, thank God, I'm, I, I'm glad I'm not like that person. That's not how we help fallen people. And then competent, a competent plan to help everyone involved. Now, there are a lot of scriptures that you could bring to bear on this situation. I just want to mention one. It's Galatians chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, you're probably familiar with that passage. I hope so. Uh, if you're not, I would encourage you to become familiar with it, even, even memorize it, because this is a go-to passage when it comes to helping anyone, whether it's a fallen leader or uh, your friend that you work with or someone in your family. It doesn't matter. This passage applies to all of us across the board when we find ourselves captured by some kind of sin. Now, there are 54 words in this text of Scripture. I am using the ESV. And so in the ESV, Galatians 6, verses 1, 2, and 3, there are 54 words. Seven of those words apply to the person who is caught in sin. Forty-seven of those words apply to us, the restorers. And so when Paul was thinking about two people groups the individual caught in sin, and then those who are helping that person, he gave seven words to the person caught and 47 words to us, the restorers. This is how he said it in the ESV. Brothers, now here's the seven words for the caught person. If anyone is caught in any transgression, that's it. There's the fallen leader right there, seven words. You who are spiritual... 
Now he's in the 47 words, which applies to all of us who are coming alongside that person. You who are spiritual, meaning those of you who have the spirit, you have been born again. You are a Christian. You see, all Christians are leaders. All Christians have the responsibility to do work of restoration within their ability to do so. Now, maybe this situation is a pay grade higher than, than what your competencies are at this point. That's fine, but you still have a role to play, uh, not gossiping, not looking at the person self-righteously, uh, praying for this person and the family, and, and supporting those who are helping in this situation. So everybody has a leadership responsibility. And so you who have the Spirit should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The word restore is kartizo. You'll find it three times in the New Testament, and in all three times it has this idea of, of mending, putting back together. It also has the idea of speaking God's word into a chaotic situation. When we speak God's word into chaos, it brings order from that chaos. And so we have a chaotic fallen leader. His life is chaotic. And so we want to restore him. And we do that by speaking God's truth into his life and also his family. Paul says that we should do this in a spirit of gentleness. And that is huge. And so maybe you can think about if you're married and uh, your spouse has done something knuckleheaded-ish, and how did you come alongside your spouse? In a spirit of gentleness? Do you have the spirit? Are you a Christian? Then we do this in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is part of the fruit of the spirit. And then that's the first sentence. And then he says, keep watch on yourself lest you do be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so there's the 47 words that Paul gives to us, the restorers. I'll not speak any more to that, but may it be an admonishment. May it be an opportunity for us to think about how we respond to people who are caught in sin. And so now I want to talk about the actual fallen leader. How do we care for this person? Well, in a non-exhaustive bulleted list, I would say first you've got to assess the situation. What happened to this person? I mean, exactly what happened. Not in the present tense, not just in the present tense. You see, we use the language of a fallen leader and we say that he fell in sin, but in virtually every case, that's not technically true. You see, a person just doesn't doesn't fall into sin, like you don't fall in love. When you look at the situation and you begin to assess it, not just in the present tense, what you're going to see is a long trail that led to this moment of exposure and caughtness in this individual's life. And so what happened to the person? Who is a part of the problem? Not just him, but but anyone else that could be part of the problem. And so you want to do expansive examination of what has gone on, not just examining the present situation that everybody knows about, but also the trail that led to this situation. And then as you begin to gather that information, you want to begin to counsel the person. And so what we have is the macro, which really uh, opens up the net, to try to capture all the data that you can possibly uh, capture. And then you have 
the micro where you really start zeroing in on the individual that will that will move from the behaviors that we're probably talking about. There's some kind of behavior when we say they, they had fell into sin. But also the heart behind the behavior, the, the heart that caused the behavior. And so you want to counsel the person. I would encourage you to understand the doctrine of repentance. In fact, I have a link here in the show notes, 441, uh, that will take you to a one-hour webinar, outstanding teaching on the doctrine of repentance, the order of repentance, the steps, the sequential steps, so that you can make sure that when you do all your data gathering and bring specific customized counsel to this individual, that you're doing it within the framework of repentance because that is the goal uh, that is what you want to happen with this individual. One of the steps of repentance is confession, and I just want to mention that one. I'm going to pull that out of our 13 steps of repentance that we teach in our Mastermind program, because this one will be the confession is the person sharing with you uh, what happened. And one of the things that I've noticed with people who are caught in sin, many times their confession only rises to the level of what everybody knows. And so they are caught in sin. And when you talk about, well, you need to let us, how can we help you? Uh, we, we, we want to be able to restore you. We can't restore you unless we know what has happened. This is what we know. And, and many times the person who is caught will finally uh, they will come out and say, yeah, that's true, that's true. But in almost every case, what you know about what happened uh, is only part of exactly what happened. And so one of the things, without being suspicious, because we can't be cynical, suspicious people, but we want to be discerning people. And so in a situation like this, uh, almost every case if he's truly broken and genuine and is really teachable and humble and wants help, that person is going to tell you more than what you already know. And that is a very good sign. Now, if he just tells you what you already know, I mean, maybe that's the limit of everything that has happened. Okay, that could be. And so, again, you don't want to be suspicious, but you want to keep this in mind. Most of us are all of us to some degree, we're into rep reputation management and damage control. And those could be our first two impulses to maintain my reputation and to do, do damage control. Uh, because if they know everything that is going on, I mean, the entire trail that led to this moment of exposure, they just know the exposure, but they are not aware of the incremental steps that led to this exposure. And so we'll go into reputation management as a first instinct and damage control as a second impulse. And that's just the way that we are. We know that it's true. And so without suspicion and without being cynical, we want to just keep that at the top of mind as they are letting you know what has happened in this situation. So you want to go micro pinpoint, you want to go macro expansive, and then you want to provide counsel for as long as it takes, as long as it takes to restore the leader. Uh, we have an article on our website talking about three ways of overcoming sin. 
I would encourage you to read that article as well. And I talk about amputation, mortification, and limitation. And what I mean by that in amputation is behavioral modification. This is what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5. Your eye offends you, cut, uh, pluck it out. Hand offends you, cut it off. Hyperbole again, like my reader uh, who uh, asked the question, we just bag them up and throw them out. Hyperbole, I understand. Jesus is using hyperbole as well, and he's saying that if, if there's a thing that we can cut off, cut it off and put it out of our life. We don't want sin hanging on to us, and so there will be some things that will be amputatable in this individual's life. If it's a relationship that he needs to cut off, if it's a, a community of friends, if it's a uh, some kind of he has devices or whatever that lead to the sin, that help him to sin, uh, then just amputate those things out of his life. Mortification is a little more complex. It's a little deeper and a little harder to overcome. It is to take the vitality out of the sin, to render it dead, to render it ineffective. Talking more about what's going on inside of us, you know, there's things that we can cut off in a second, in a day. If I'm an alcoholic and I drive by the ABC store, the liquor store, and, and it just, my heart is just, it just gravitates toward that. Well, I can get another route to work or another route to wherever I am going, and I can just amputate that. However, there is a deeper problem. My heart is still uh, attracted to alcohol. And so though I can amputate the route to work, I need to do that mortification of killing that which is inside my heart. James talked about this in James 1, 14 and 15, that we're lured away by our own desires. And, and when those desires are met with sin, it just takes a hold of us. And so there's heart work to do. And that's why I say provide counsel for as long as it takes to cartetizo, to restore this leader. Some things will be simple. Well, not simple. will be simpler as far as amputating stuff. Some things will be harder, mortifying, mortification. And then there is limitation, and you see that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, set aside those weights. There'll be things in his life uniquely that aren't necessarily sin for any of us, but it's sin to him because it provides a portal. It provides a way of him of connecting his deceptive and alluring heart to something that allows him to sin. And so the thing here is not sinful, but it is a, a portal or a, a conduit that allows him to sin. And so even though it is not sinful, you want to limit it because it's hindering the race. That is set before him. And so when I say provide counsel for as long as it takes to restore the leader, those are three general categories that you want to think about. And the one that will take the longest amount of time will be mortification. You see caught in Galatians 6.1, it, it has the idea of stepping into a bear trap and being captured. I've illustrated it this way before that my, my dad, when he first started drinking as a 21-year-old, uh, he was in control of making those decisions. He was not caught. He was choosing to go and, and get alcohol. After a while, though, alcohol came around and it captured him. We would call this an addiction in our modern parlance. 
But it, it caught him, and now he is caught, and he is not in control any longer. What you will probably find is that there are sin issues that have captured him. Brothers, if anyone is caught, you who are spiritual, you Christians, Cartatiso him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself because the very same thing can happen to any of us. And so depending on how long that trail is, I don't know what the fallen leader has fallen into, but there will be a trail that has led to this moment of exposure. And if he has been habituated in a lifestyle for a year, 10 years, 30 years, it's not uncommon, 40 years, then the mortification will be very difficult. And so when I say provide counsel for as long as it takes to restore the leader, it could be a very long time. I am not talking about traditional biblical counseling window where there is a start time and end time. Uh, let's do, we got 12 sessions, and that's what we're going to do. Now, maybe you move out of traditional biblical counseling at some point, but it would be very unwise not to provide ongoing soul care for this person uh, for an extended period of time, even though it might not be what we would call formalized biblical counseling. This could take a long time. And so I would encourage you as you care for this person, I'm going to move on to the family now, but please take advantage of our website because as I've I've already mentioned some articles, a webinar on the doctrine of repentance. We do have, we have a lot of resources on in our sanctification center, our coffee shop, and so please take advantage. And so you counsel him, and then you want to care for his family. His family will be the silent sufferers. Uh, also, you know, I think about this with my own family. Uh, I did a conference in Alaska one time, a couple actually, but on one of those visits. Uh, the pastor who was introducing me introduced my family. And I, and I went to him afterwards and just thanked him for doing that. Uh, people can think that the ministry and, and, and Rick gets the, the, the accolades or the, the attaboys or the, the slap on the back. And that happens too much. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, there were several, but one of the reasons we just went through a, a rebranding process over the past five years because I wanted my name pulled off of this ministry and out of this ministry. I was telling someone today they are uh, wanting to start something similar to this, and I was talking to them, and, and I, I told them that uh, I, I'm just not a front person. Doing what I do here is not who I am. My, my personality is introverted, and I can sit in this corner back behind me and just have one light on and read a book for the rest of my life. Being a public person is not who I am. It's not my preference. It's not something that I crave. But because God has called me and I have to set aside my preferences and, and set aside my complaining and my, my potential rational, rationalizing uh, that, you know, I can't do that, Lord. You know, who am I to speak? And, you know, all of that nonsense. No, God has called me. And, and if I'm going to be rightly affected by the gospel, I have to step into that, not under my own strength, but being, um, but being uh, empowered by him. And I have to do things that, you know, this doesn't come natural to me and it's not particularly comfortable. But with that comes accolades and praise 
and I'm not comfortable with that. And then even more so when my family is outside of that because they are a valuable part of this. They live in this fishbowl. People ask us regularly, tell us about your life. Tell us about what you do. People will text or DM through various social media platforms and, hey, we've been following your family and you know watching what you're doing and so forth. And I know as a Christian leader, that carries a lot of weight. That's why we rarely ever put anything on social media about our family because they live in a fishbowl and they are they know that they're critiqued and judged charitably and uncharitably and so there is weight there on a leader's family and, and they are the silent sufferers and this is something that we do talk about within our family and if I fall into sin or if a this leader has fallen into sin now you have a family that can't just extricate themselves from what is happening to them. And not only, I mean, it's not a normal fishbowl any longer. That fishbowl just is huge. It is now huge uh, because there's more people that are aware, not just aware of the individual, but aware of a very negative thing that has come into this family. And so the church has to come alongside the spouse of this person. And if there are children, they got to come alongside the children and care for them for an incredibly long period of time. And now I want to talk about something that is really delicate and complex and it's not something that every biblical counselor can navigate through because this is a minefield, and so I'm going to say it, and then I'll just tease it out just a little bit. But you're going to have to discern the difference between cause and contribute. You see, if the leader is married, there could be some contribution from the spouse, but... You did not hear me say that the spouse is the cause. Nobody can make us sin. The fallen leader, the sin is all on him 100%. And he would never, you, you would never let him get away with saying that, that she made me do it. No, the sin is all on him. He is the fallen leader. But we have to be honest with the situation that we are looking at. And I use the illustration of myself my dad was an alcoholic, and he beat us with his hands. He beat us with belts. He beat us with, we call them switches. A switch in the southern part of the United States is where you go cut a limb off a tree, and you beat your child. I mean, they don't assume this doesn't happen anymore, but it was very common when I was a kid, and you can actually bleed and my drunk daddy beat us many times, kicked us, hit us, cursed us, and so forth and so on. I became an angry teenager, and, and, and because I didn't have anyone come alongside me to help me to discern between cause and contribute, uh, I didn't, I blamed everything on him, uh, or blamed most everything on him as though I wasn't the cause of it, but it would be wrong for me to say, it would be intellectually dishonest to say that my dad didn't contribute to what happened to me, because he did contribute. He didn't cause, no matter how many times he beat me, it, he didn't cause me to choose to sin when I was an angry teenager uh, who chose weed and alcohol and ended up in jail and, and stealing stuff, etc. And so we want to make sure, and this is why you, you restore a person in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, but restoration 
is more than just restoring a fallen leader. If this fallen leader is married, there is a one flesh dynamic here, and there could be children that flow out of this one flesh dynamic that has created an autonomous domestic empire. And so sin is contaminating, and, and if we say, well, well, he's the cause and there's no contribution, you may not be examining the full trail that led up to this point of exposure, and you may not do accurate data collecting. This is something that you don't hear a lot from biblical counselors, but it's something that we need to say out loud. And I'll move on from this, but I'll just say in closing, I have not said, I have not suggested Explicitly, I've not implied that the spouse caused him to sin because that's untrue. But I would be intellectually dishonest. And at this point in my understanding of biblical, understanding and practice of biblical counseling, I would be sinning at a conscience level if I did not say that uh, you have to examine contribution if you really want to restore this family. And so the wife is not the cause, but she can contribute, and so can the children. And so at some point in time, as you continue, this is why this is a long-term care thing, because you would never say this at the first, not while she was hurting at this level. That would be so dishonest. But I have seen wives who are victimized by adultery who actually come to this point in their sanctification and restoration of their marriage. Well, they would say, I remember one lady saying that, she clearly understood that she didn't cause him to sin, but she began to examine herself, recognizing that she was not the wife that she could have been. That is Christian maturity. And so discern the difference between cause and contribute. And then finally, I want to talk about the local church. Be clear, but not explicit about what happened and the plans for transformation. The church needs to know because they already know. Uh, you're not going to stop gossip from the local church. That will never happen until Jesus returns. And so you want to get out in front of it and be clear with what happened without being explicit, without getting into the details, and then give the church plan. Here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. You want to let the church know that you take sin seriously. And, and one of the ways that you will do that would be by talking about this publicly. It is a public sin, and the awareness of this sin is a, a certain broadness. And so you want to make sure that you communicate within that broadness. You don't have to put it out on Facebook or anything like that, but a family meeting with the local church speaking appropriately. Here, this is where we are. And, and by going through this process, it will be an admonition for some people like, wow, this church really takes sin seriously. I want to guard my heart. Maybe I need to repent of something. I've seen that happen before. But it would not only be an admonition for some, it would be an encouragement to others. A dad, I would imagine, could sit in there and think, wow, thank God this church cares about sin. This is where I want my family. Now, I'm not talking about a sin-centered church. A church is on a sin hunt all the time. But, but a church that reasonably and responsi responsibly and with maturity 
They care about the things that Christ cares about, and they communicate it. And so for caring for the church, be clear but not explicit about what happened. Let the church know that you take sin seriously. And then point number three, may the process be an admonition or an encouragement to the church body. And then finally, I want to talk about the future plan. This is something that you need to say out loud. You see, this happened in plain sight, even though it may have been imperceptible to many. Sometimes, uh, on hindsight, when something like this comes out, people will say, oh man, I saw something, or I was thinking this. And we, don't, we just don't have a transparent community to where we can talk about things. We can go to our brothers and we can communicate. We may be wrong. That's great. If we're wrong, we're wrong. But we believe that this is what we need to say, and so we go and say it privately, quietly, silently, between two brothers. But this happened in plain sight. The local church should be the most transparent community in the world outside of our families. The local church should be the most transparent community in the world outside of our families. Imagine a hospital, let me use an analogy, full of sick people like the church. We're all messed up. The local church, any local church, everybody in that church is messed up to one degree or another. Imagine a hospital full of sick people, but the doctors, the nurses, the patients are not talking to each other and not helping each other. Would you go to that hospital? Would you want to be a part of that hospital? It's like, wow, the hospital is full of sick people on every floor, down every hall. They have all this equipment, but nobody is talking to each other. The doctors aren't talking to the nurses. Nurses aren't talking to the doctors. The patients aren't talking to the doctors. The nurses aren't talking to the patients. What kind of hospital is that? If we cannot talk about what is wrong with us, there is a problem with us that has present complications, as we have here with the fallen leader, but it will have future complications as well. And so we have to create an environment, a transparent community, which the church should be the number one transparent community outside of 1A, which is our family. What can you do about that? Well, you can start praying for your local church, and you can start creating a culture of transparency by being appropriately transparent with a friend. Start with baby steps and begin to be part of the solution if you don't have a culture of transparency in your local church. The fallen leader had a secret sin, and that sin matured in a church context in plain sight. And so I'm not condemning the church. I don't want you to hear that. I love the church. We have a high view of the local church. But I am appealing to myself and any Christian community. And the two primary Christian communities I have outlined. The family is the number one Christian community. And then those are the parts that make up the whole. The local church is the number two Christian community. And so I am not condemning, but I'm appealing to those two Christian communities, my family, your family, my church, your church, to address any sanctification weaknesses. Assess your community to see what changes need to happen, to create an environment of grace where folks are compelled 
internally by the Spirit of God to want to build appropriate biblical relationships with one or two. I build with one or two, they build with one or two, and using the idea of six degrees of separation as we continue to build with one or two within this local church, eventually the entire local church could be a growing, maturing, transparent community that takes sin seriously and that we're getting the help that we need preventatively before it happens like what happened with this fallen leader. And so this is episode 441, How to Respond to a Fallen Christian Leader. I have given you a bulleted outline that I would love you to take advantage of in these show notes. But then also, if you really need specific help, then I want you to go throughout our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com, and you can look for thousands of resources, literally. And then if you are a part of our supporting community, then that's the opportunity that you have to interact with us on our private forums. And so and if you're not part of our supporting community, please do. We, we need your help. Uh, we do need more supporters because our business model is to give our product away, to put it in a marketing cultural framework. We give our resources away. That is our model. But like this podcast here, the time and effort, there's a cost to that. And so if you can be a supporter of our ministry, you'd be surprised. I mean, $10 a month uh, would be fantastic. But with that, you can come into our private community and then you could have interaction with us on a daily, weekly basis, you know, however much and often you want to talk to us about the things that are important to you. Episode 441, how to respond to a Christian leader. Thank you so much and may God bless you. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.